John 1 is where we are. We are going to be looking at a little more passages, but I want to read to you 19 through 29. John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 19 through 29 will be our scripture reading. Hear the word of the Lord. First, uh, John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Why do you say, What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him then, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Dismiss the kids. Parents, please make sure that you check uh, your kids in. That would be great. Somebody out there from the hospitality team. And we are going to get into 1 John. We'll let the kids go to their appropriate class. And uh, we're going to be in 1 John today. We're going to, uh, excuse me, not 1 John, John 1. I keep saying that, right? You're like, where are we at? 1 John is the women's class. I think this Sunday is the last Sunday. Is that right, ladies? Anybody? Yes? Gospel according to John. We're going to be in this book for quite some time, so I want to encourage each of you to read the book, get on your Bible, get a Bible app on your iPad or your, your iPhone or your Droid, and listen to the book as often as possible, reading the book, saturating yourself with the book. We'll be in it probably throughout the winter into the spring. Um, if you miss any of the sermon series, I want to bring you to that website where you could download the sermon, watch on video, you could... Um, Sign up for our podcast as well. Our title has been The Visible Made Visible. The Invisible Made Visible. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, uh, excuse me, John the Baptist. If you look at your Bibles in chapter 1 of the Gospel, it says in verse 6, in verse 7, we see John the Baptist kind of put right in there and kind of uh, John the Apostle who wrote this book has put like an insert and just kind of began to show us a little bit about John the Baptist in verses 6 and 7. If you go look down in your Bibles to verse 15, uh, the ESV at least has a parenthesis. John bore witness about him and cried out, kind of like the parentheses, not in the original Greek language. It's kind of like this, this is kind of just thrown in there and kind of just we want you to see a little bit of John. So what I did was I wanted to deal with the whole idea of John the Baptist because we pick him up in verse 19 where he's giving testimony witnesses and I wanted to deal with it all in one shot. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So John the Baptist who we'll look at today is not John who's the author of this book. He's an apostle 
And right now, as we know, as we've learned so far, that not only is he a close companion to Jesus, not only is he someone who was, who was an eyewitness of, of the perfect life, the ministry, his death and resurrection of Jesus, but we know from, our, from this gospel account that God, Jesus, the, the man who became flesh, God who became flesh, um, told John that when the Spirit comes, he will guide him into all truth. That when Jesus would go to the cross, rise from the dead, he would send the Spirit. He would not be uh, coming in, in John's authority, but in Jesus' authority. And that he will declare everything that he has made known to John, he will make known to him. And that's what we have. We have the record of John here, the Gospel according to John. All that Jesus did and said, as he says in chapter 20, so that you may believe, that you may trust, that you may yield your life to Jesus. He opens his account talking about the Logos. We looked at that already. That the Logos in chapter 1, verse 1, was with God. He was, he, was, he was with God from the beginning and that he was God. So there's this distinctiveness that Jesus is God who became flesh. He is the God-man, but yet he's the second person of the Trinity. So we like Jews in the first century are what is called monotheistic. In other words, we worship one God in three persons. It's not tritheism, like three gods who got together and decided to, you know, work things out. Or what some people call modalism, which the book, The Shack, the heretical teaching about the Holy Spirit you find in The Shack. I'm sorry if you like that book, but I don't know what to tell you. Um, modalism where God shows up in this mode and that mode, and, and it, that's not what we believe. Orthodoxy, a Christianity believes that God is one, a God, one, one in essence, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal, one in essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And John teaches that in John chapter one, that in the beginning was the word, in eternity past, always existed was the word, and the word was with God. There was distinction, but indivisibleness, and the word was God, so he was God, and John teaches that, and in verse 18, if you go down in verse 14, in verse 18, he's the only son, or the only God, that's the word begotten, means that he's unique, he's special, he's the only one of the same nature. We are children of God, Jesus is the son of God. That's what he's trying to say. And he's trying, look, look down with me in verse 14. He says, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through, first time we have his name, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Okay? Last week we saw how verses 14 through 18 was really John kind of connecting an Old Testament story. In Exodus, we saw at verse chapter 32 that Moses had this encounter with God and he wanted to see his glory. And God put him in a cleft of a rock and, and kind of passed by him and, and, and declared that I am, I, am the, I am the Lord God, full of grace, full of truth. But Moses couldn't see his glory. He says, because you will die. Just got a glimpse. And John says, the very glimpse of what you could not see is Jesus Christ. He is the full revealer, the ultimate revealer of God. You know, many religions, many prophets of other religions will tell you that they point to God. They, they kind of give you the road in which you can follow, whether it's the five-fold path, whatever it is that will bring you to the path where you could see God. Only Jesus 
Only Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Only Jesus didn't just simply point to or explain God. He is the explanation of God, and you need to see that. You need to see this witness that John is saying in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that he is declaring about who Jesus is. And when you see that, you, now you can look at John, the, the Baptist, and we'll see him today. Because John the Apostle was given an eternal witness and testimony of who Jesus is. He's the Word who became flesh. He is God who became man. That's what the Apostle John is saying. Now John the Baptist is going to give us an earthly witness of who Jesus is. And we're going to see that witness today. So, this is our outline. Who John was not, some of you English teachers may not like this. Who John was, who John was testifying to. So that's, that's where we're going. Okay? That's where we're going. John is called John the Baptizer. Now, talking about the apostle, we're talking about the baptizer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke call the synoptic gospels. John is called the baptizer. John the apostle, and I don't want to get that confused. Um, I'll try to make, tell you who I'm talking about. John the apostle calls John the baptizer, John the witness. He never used the term baptizer. In fact, the term witness is used, I think, over 25 times in the gospel according to John. He is John the witness. He is testifying. And that's really important, as we'll see in a moment. But first I want you to notice who John is not. Now there are a lot of negatives running throughout this passage. Look with me at verse 7. Okay? He, John the Baptist, John the witness, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Like he's trying to say something, right? Did you catch that? So the first thing John says, well, you know what? I, I'm not the light. I'm bearing witness. I'm testifying to. I am telling you truthfully what I've seen, what I've heard, and what I've known, that I'm not the light. There is a light. He is the light of man, he says, but I'm not the light. Right? I'm here to give witness, testimony, to tell the truth, no more, no less. I'm not the light. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Look what he says. He confessed and did not deny. That, that's a, that's a, a strong in the, in, in the Greek. I, I'm making it really clear. And there's not even a slight suggestion. I am not the Christ. Obviously, these Pharisees that came from Jerusalem would like find out this guy claims to be the Christ. There were many people claiming to be the Christ. So they sent their, this, this delegate to him and said, you know, are you the Christ? He said, I'm not the Christ. You see, the Jews in that day were looking for the Christ. But the Christ they were looking for was one who would come and, and, and usher in the earthly kingdom. Somebody who would come and destroy their enemies, would put Rome down. And we'd come in and establish, uh, you know, destroy evil and establish a kingdom on earth where Israel would be the preeminent, preeminent, prominent nation in the world. We see that in the New Testament. We see John, the Apostle John, and his brother James 
going to Jesus and saying, when you come into your kingdom, when this kingdom is established, let, let me sit on the left and let my brother sit on the right. If you remember the first Palm Sunday and Jesus coming in on, on, on a cult of a donkey, he, they're singing, Hosanna, save us now. They were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for a king who would save them now, a, a conquering king. John says, I'm not him. I'm not that military guy. I'm not that one that's coming in. I, and I think his life would have ended probably right there if he said he was. His life didn't end much later than that. He got his, he got head, you know, his head cut off. But he says, I'm not the Christ. Verse 20, 21. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Like, dude, we're trying to figure out who you are. You're not helping us. All you keep saying is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. This one he says, you know, are you Elijah? I'm not, I'm not him. It's a reasonable question. If, you don't, if you're not sure what that means is, he's trying to, they're trying to say, are you the one that in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, or, or as I like to say, the only Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> if you're Malachi and you're reading the last book of the Old Testament, he's talking about someone coming. He's talking about uh, 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 this promise that God is going to send the prophet Elijah before this great and dreadful day of the Lord. Are you him? And, and, and quite honestly, I think it's a good question. John, the Baptist, not only had the demeanor of that prophet, but also resembled Elijah in his lifestyle and his powerful message of judgment. In fact, if you read the other Gospels accounts, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you'll find that he is, in some sense, Elijah. James, the Apostle John, Peter, go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is glowing. His intrinsic glory is just being, just shining bright. And who's on, who comes on the scene? Elijah and Moses. They're like, yo, let's build a tabernacle for these guys. Let's build a dwelling for them. Jesus is like, no, 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 that's okay. You don't need to do that. After that scene, they're on the way down the mountain and, the, and, and they turn to Jesus. They go, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man would suffer many things to be treated with contempt? So in other words, the apostles like, Malachi said Elijah's coming. We go to this mountain. We see him. He's coming before the great day of the Lord. We saw him. So on the way down, like, yo, we're getting ready. The great day of the Lord is coming. We just saw Elijah. And Jesus is talking about suffering. He's like, no, you don't understand. Elijah does come first, but I must suffer and die. The Messiah has not come to set up his earthly kingdom at the moment. He will. But he came to be the suffering servant first. So they're kind of confused. And, and everyone's kind of, well, is he Elijah or is he not Elijah? Jesus says he's come. When John the Baptist was born or right before his birth, when the prophecy was given to his father, it says that he will come in the power of Elijah. So is he Elijah? No, I'm not him. Well, did he lie? No. I, the, the, the people are asking him, are you Elijah? What they were asking him, and he understood this, is I, they didn't ask, are you coming in the power and the likeness of Elijah? They said, are you Elijah? Elijah was taken up with a chariot of fire, and they're like, he's come back. He's li- are you literally Elijah? Have you come back from the chariot of fire that you went up? Are you back down and now you're seen among us? And he's like, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Look what he says next. 
verse 19, right? 20. I am not, look what he says. Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Then they ask him, are you the prophet? Right? Are you the prophet? Verse 21. So, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet then? Deuteronomy 18. Are you the prophet that God promised to Moses who will come and speak for him? That we should listen to him? Are you that guy? And look, his, his answers are getting shorter and shorter. I'm not him and not him and not him. And then they're like, no. It's like, no. Are you him? No. Like, I'm getting tired of answering you guys. You keep asking me if I'm this person, I'm that person. No. The prophet that Deuteronomy 18 speaks about, many of the Jewish people thought and believed that it was going to be an Elijah-like, a kind of uh, a pre, uh, uh, someone who would come right before the day of the Lord. And, and this person would come and this person would, would prepare the way of the dreadful day of the Lord. Are you that guy? He's like, no, I'm not him. In fact, Acts chapter 3 and chapter 7, we know that person is Jesus. He's, he's the one who would come and God would say, listen to him. He did it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, listen to him. He's my son. Listen to him. So are you that guy? No, I'm not him. So what can we say about all this? Are, are, are you a witness? Are you the light? No, I'm not the light. Are you the life? No, I'm not the life. Are you the Messiah? I am not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? I am not Elijah. Are you that prophet? I am not a prophet. You know, a very important aspect of witnessing and testifying is declaring what we are not saying, what we are not testifying to, what we have not seen and what we have not heard. Understand? The Bible declares that among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Did you hear that? The Bible says that those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Think for a moment being John the Baptist. Think for a moment of being used so greatly and so mightily as as one who is no one greater than you. Think of how easy it would be, and if if you say, no, that's not me, you're kidding yourself, to give witness about how great you are or how great I am. Or how great God used me. Or look how special I am in the redemptive plan of God. That God chose me in all the world, in all the centuries, to prepare the way for his Messiah. I think that would be rather easy. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, when we think, whenever, whoever it may be, when we think that there is something important about us, and the focus is on us, we will always cease to be an effective witness to Christ. It's subtle. But when our attitude and our perspective, particularly in times of ministry where things are going well, that the kingdom, we think the kingdom will advance because of me, this ministry, this work, this calling on my life will not happen unless I'm there, unless I'm doing it. That's a downward spiral. John says, I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm not him. Heard a story about a well-known football coach. He went to a vacation with his wife in a small town. He was a winning coach. And it just happened to be in a small town. This was years ago that they decided to go to a movie. 
And those days in the movies, uh, there was an agreement that a certain amount of people need to be present before they would show the movie. And there was just not enough people. They needed two more people in the movie theater. And they made an announcement, unless two more people come in, we're not showing the movie. Two minutes later, his football coach comes walking in with his wife, and the whole place erupts in clapping. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I want autographs. Like, autographs? We don't know who you are. Sit down. We've got enough people. The movie's going to start, you know? <laughs> when it's all about us, when it's all about our kingdom, that's the opposite of what we hear and see John. Grope. Uh, Pope Gregory I, 6th and 7th century, he was the one that kind of formulated the seven deadly sins. Um, He said there are four ways in which pride rears its ugly head. One, he says, to think that your good is from yourself. Your good is from yourself. All that I have, all the good that I do is a product of me. Modern humanism. Number two, you believe that your goodness is from God, yet It is due because of your own good merits, the things that you have done. Yes, God got the ball rolling. He gave me a brain. He gave me a breath of air. He gave me some talents, but I got it from here. I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. My way, my strength. The Frank Sinatra syndrome, right? I can do it my way. Number three, pride rears its ugly head when we boast of things that we really don't have. The guy or the girl said, look how smart I am and look how rich I am when they're not. They're just, they're just puffily priding themselves on what they don't have. Fourth, pride rears its head when we appear to be the exclusive possessor of what we have. Those are the people that are, that are, that are quick to put down other people who see that they have gifts, talents, and abilities greater than their own. And they're threatened by them. C.S. Lewis wrote, The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small, end quote. I I draw this contrast between the ministry of John the Baptist and his I am not statement. Not not to say, not, not to say, listen, you need to be, you need to, to stop being superior and a little dose of inferiority will be better for you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase, must increase, but I must decrease. John will go on to say that he's not even worthy to untie the dirty sandals of Jesus. Now we could say I am unworthy and mean I hate and disgust myself and, 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 and just, you know, degrade myself or you could say I am unworthy I mean I am freed from and I forget myself one's destructive the other one's humility and the truth is the fact is that I am in God's arms he has taken care of me I have my identity value and forgiveness and worth in Christ and the gospel and my heart is healed and my pride is put away and in check because the greatness of God The beauty and love and forgiveness and acceptance of God is my greatest treasure and the ultimate message and the witness of my life. That's why Paul, excuse me, John the Baptist was able to say, I'm not him. It's not about me. God has called me. God has gifted me. God is using me. But it's not about me. Who John was not. Look who John was. 
Do you know familiar with John the Baptist? His mother, Elizabeth, related to Mary, Jesus' mom. Father is Zechariah. Okay? They were old, older, advancing years. I don't know how old that is. I used to think it was around 45. I don't anymore. <laughs> right? It always happens. You're like, yeah, you're old. Yeah. Well, now it's like 200 is old to me. But anyway, he's serving in the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He's got, he got picked to go in there to burn incense. The angel, not just any angel, Gabriel comes. And he's like, listen, I know you're advancing years, but you're going to have a son. He did what all of us would do, like, really? And he doubts, right? And he said, no, no, you're going to have a son. He's going to be filled with the Spirit from birth. He's going to, have the, he's going to come in the power of Elijah. He's going to bring a ministry of reconciliation. He's going to have, you know, the preaching of repentance, and many people are going to turn from their sins. And he's like, ah, I don't know. That sounds a little far-fetched to me. It's like, and he's like, okay, well, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to speak. And he leaves, and he can't talk. And there was a miracle that day. Elizabeth had become pregnant, and she has a husband who can't speak during pregnancy. But <laughs> it says that John was born, and John was raised to love the Lord. The Bible says that he went into the desert, and the Bible says that he couldn't drink alcohol. He couldn't have anything to drink. And if you're wondering why, why was John not allowed to drink alcohol? It's very theological. He's a crazy mountain man born and raised in the desert, and you don't want to give that guy a drink. That's really the reason. No, he took a, some people think he took a Nazarite vow, but he's the guy, he's in the ministry, in the desert, I mean, and his whole life, right, he's, he eats bugs, and he eats honey. Bugs and honey is his diet. <laughs> like, you got, you're a little off and you get a little bit old when you're eating bugs and honey all your life. You're not going to be that stable. But anyway, he's around 30 years old. He comes out of the desert and he's preaching in this big burly voice, I'm sure. He's got camel's hair and a big leather belt, the Bible says. He's got, you know, who knows? He's probably got a beard all knotted up. He's been eating bugs and drinking honey all day. And now he's preaching, repent. Repent. Turn from your sins. That's John. Look at verse 6 with me. There was a man sent from God who was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So here we see the word witness. Look down in verse 19. It says that he, this is the testimony. And we'll look at those words. He was sent to bear witness, and now we have his testimony. You see that? Now, God does not need a witness. God does not need human testimony. He doesn't even need you or me. But he does use us anyway. The necessity of human witness does not mean God is dependent on the initiative of human. He, he has chosen the way, the means, and the methods of his redeeming work. We are the feet of Jesus. We carry the message of Jesus. John was called by God from in the, in the womb and then sent and then sent as a witness of God's redemption in Christ. Now, the word witness, the word testimony comes from a courtroom, right? It's about having firsthand knowledge. When you're a witness, this is what John is talking about, in a testimony, you know, in the court system, like you, you, you are called in to give the facts, to tell us what you saw, tell us what happened in a certain event, a historical event that taken place so they could establish Old Testament law, two or three witnesses before a verdict can be rendered. Now, although God does not need a witness or testimony concerning himself, God has chosen 
to give us a testimony to us, right here at King's Chapel, including there, through John the Baptist. And he's using this language of witness and testimony to validate, to, to verify the truth, to verify the truth of the gospel being established before man, okay? John said, we have seen him, we've seen him, the word became flesh, we have seen him, we touched him, and we've handled him. He's a credible witnesses. And that's what the New Testament is telling us, that we have seen him, we know the truth, and we're giving you testimony. What is so weird, if you think about it in this way, what is so crazy and ridiculous is that in our culture, when we talk about Christianity, we have thrown away eyewitness testimonies. People who refuse to bow their knee to God will say, prove it to me. Something happened 2,000 years ago. Prove to me that Jesus existed and really died and rose again. But the reality is we can't show them proof like that from, from history. For example, I cannot prove to you right now that George Washington was the first president. I can't. Or that Abraham Lincoln was shot April 14th, 1865 by John Wilkes Booth who entered the presidential box at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. I cannot prove that to you. I'm pretty sure it happened. Now, I know people are trying to change history these days, but I'm pretty sure on that day, how do we know that? Through eyewitnesses and testimonies who were there who wrote the historical account that on April 14th, 1865, he entered the booth and he shot the president. So if that's the kind of proof that Jesus was truly God who became man, died an atoning death, I can't do that, but John can. He was there and he witnessed and testified to those facts. That's what he's saying. You see, they are witnessing the proof. They had an eyewitness. We have the evidence of their eyewitness. Does that make sense? Okay. I got a little something in my coat here. Excuse me. I'll grab that. Yeah. Three volunteers. I'm very serious, too. You're like, is he really calling up volunteers? I am. Who wants to volunteer? All right, I could pick volunteers. I don't know if you're supposed to pick a volunteer, <laughs> but I could. Bob's coming up. Okay, Bob. Bob, I want you to grab this. No, no. Yeah, take the pen. Take that. Come on up. We have, well, two or three credible witnesses. I'm not really sure. Hey, All right, here you go. Okay, now, I'm going to show you guys something. And I want you to write down what you see. Don't say anything. I want you to just write it down, okay? I got it in my pocket. You tell me what that is. Write it down. Don't say anything. All right? Okay, cool. I knew that. All right? Write it down. Dun, 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 dun. Very good. Very good. You got buzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let me read it. I'm going to read it. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, I got it. What is a chocolate chip cookie? Cookie in bag and cookie. Now, how many people believe that I had a cookie in a bag? Okay. Now, you believe them, but you don't have proof. You didn't see it. You believe their written testimony about what I have. 
Well, what I did was, I'm not an idiot, you know what I mean? I got, I, how many people now believe that I have cookie in a bag? Raise your hand, okay? My wife's cookies. But I, but I bought three, because I know they were going to say, why'd you give him one and I didn't get one? Hold on a minute. Thank you, guys. That's what you get for volunteer. I don't want to tell anybody ahead of time, because then I'll have more than three. Okay, you can go. So what you have first was evidence. That's the evidence of what John is writing. When I showed you the cookie, that's proof. So do we have proof? Anybody see Jesus this morning? No, but we have evidence. There's a difference between proof and evidence. We have eyewitness account, written account. They saw proof. They walked with Jesus. They, they, they ministered with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They drank with Jesus. They watched Jesus go to the cross. They saw him after he rose from the dead. They have proof. And now they are giving us eyewitness testimony to that truth. But yet we're so caught up in wanting to be our own gods, our own lords, and our own saviors that we would rather listen to someone 500 years removed from Jesus and say, no, he never existed. That whole thing is silly. I don't believe any of that. Really? Three, four, five, eight, nine, 1,200 years later? You know what that's like doing? That's like being an attorney and you got a client and you call three people up and you say, listen, did you see what took place? I was there. Do you see everything? I, w- I watched the whole thing. I know exactly what happened. I don't need you. You call up the next three people. Did you see that? No, I wasn't around. I was 800 miles away when it happened. All right, I want you to take the stand. You'd be fired, right? Eyewitness testimony. Proof. And now they write for us the evidence of the reality of Christ. Some people may tell you that Abraham Lincoln never was shot and never existed. Don't believe them. We have eyewitness testimony and proof. And they've given us evidence of who he is. John is a man who was sent by God to be a witness, to give us testimony to the one who is the life and the light of the world. Look at verse 22. So they say, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Ah, he says, verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. I'm just a voice. I am not the one. I'm a voice. And the significance is that it's not It's not. The importance is not the voice, but it's the message. I am a voice when crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. You can have lots of voices, and a voice without a message sounds more like a political debate. No, I had to say that, but sounds more like, you know, nonsense. A voice without a message is meaningless and empty. John says, I'm declaring a message to you. And it was a message that I've heard from, excuse me, Isaiah. Make straight the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40. The imagery is these barriers and these obstacles of being smooth and leveled in preparation for the king to come. It's actually, and when it was written in Isaiah 40, it had to do with, at that moment, with the returning exiles that were coming from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And Isaiah picks it up and says, make straight the way for the Lord. You see what he's saying? I am here to to level the playing field, to make a way. 
to make a way and preceding the one who's going to come. Show you how much you need him. So that when he appears, you will embrace him as the Messiah, the Redeemer. And something you need to know in this passage too, if you like to write in your Bibles, is in verse 23, when he says, make straight the way of the Lord, underline the word Lord. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the Old Testament, that word in the Old Testament Bible is the word for the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. So revered, they wouldn't even speak it. The scribes wouldn't even write it. When Isaiah wrote that, it made it very clear the coming of Yahweh. John the Baptist is using that covenant name that was so revered, they couldn't speak or write it and applied it to Jesus himself. And you know what? Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. Even there it does. He says it in a lot of places, but even there, he says, I'm making straight the way of the Lord. Jesus is coming. John is sent. John is a witness. John has given testimony. And John is saying, I am a voice crying out, make ready for the Lord. Well, who is he testifying to? Number one. Who is John witnessing and testifying to? Number one, the authoritative baptizer. Look at verse 24. Now, they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you, notice that, why are you baptizing then? You're saying you're not these people. Why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, you're neither Elijah nor the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now, baptism was known in the first century. Jesus did not invent baptism. Water washings, ablution, everything in the Old Testament was very common. What they're interested in is, who are you doing this? By what authority do you have? You're not one of us. You're not from the Sanhedrin. You're not a religious leader. You came out eating bugs and drinking honey from the, from the woods. Who gave you this authority to baptize? Now, in the Old Testament, non-Jews would be baptized. They would have to wash their whole bodies because when you were, were washed, like, I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish people would wash their hands before they would enter into the temple. There would be washings. And what God was doing by showing them washings and putting it in the law was showing them symbolically that they were sinners that needed to be cleansed. So when a non-Jew became a, a Jew, they would wash their whole bodies because, you know, non-Jews are really dirty. And the Jewish people would wash parts of their body. That's the way it was back then. But one thing in that first century is that you used to do it yourself. In other words, when the Jews come into the temple, they would wash their own hands, wash their feet or whatever. They would do their own washing. When a proselyte, a non-Jew, became a Jew, he would go into the, to the water and do it himself. And now John is saying, no, 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 no. In order to be fit for the kingdom, you need to be baptized. Jews and Gentiles need to be fully emerged, and you need to have it done by the hand of someone else. I baptize you. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in preparation. But look what he says. He says in verse 33 that there is one who is coming who will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. If you want to be fit for the kingdom, if you want to prepare yourself, if you want to be in the kingdom, you need to have new birth. 
Baptism of the Holy Spirit is new birth. John is pointing, but he's not the one who could die for sin. John is pointing and has the authority to baptize because God told him to, but he doesn't have the authority or the power to give new life. He's pointing to the one who can give life. He's pointing to the one who can give and, 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 and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Spirit. Notice here, too, that the Spirit doesn't do the baptism. A lot of people think that, oh, the Spirit baptized me. No, he did not. Jesus is the baptizer. Always the baptizer. The element in which we were baptized in is the Holy Spirit. Where at conversion we are baptized, we are brought into the body of Christ. We are in Christ, Christ is in us. It happens at conversion, but only Jesus can do that. Not John. He said, even the straps, I can't, I can't even uh, untie a, a dirty, menial thing that only slaves could do. I can't even do that. He's pointing to the authoritative baptizer. Verse 15, he says the same thing. John bore witness about him. He cried out, this is he whom I've said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's greater than I am. Look down at verse 31. Do I have that up there? Verse 31, no. Look down at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. It didn't just come down and leave, it remained on Jesus. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me, that's the Father, to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. That's the one. And this historical event is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Spirit does descend like a dove and remain on Jesus. This supernatural work of God was pointing to the testimony and the witness of the Messiahship of Jesus. And and now we have eyewitness to that truth. God had told me and I've seen it happen. John the Baptist, like Peter, understood who Jesus was, who truly was, by God's revelation to them. John is pointing that Jesus is far greater, so much so that he could baptize in the Spirit. Right? He can't heal. John the Baptist couldn't heal. He can't forgive, but he can point to Jesus. He's the sacrificial redeemer as well. So, number one, He points to the authoritative baptizer. Number two, he's the sacrificial redeemer. Look down at verse 29. I'm gonna wrap this up. There are two very clear, distinct titles and names for Jesus in this passage. He's not only authoritative baptizer, but there's two names, and we see him as the sacrificial redeemer. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he whom I said after me comes, a man who ranks before me. See that? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Mark that in your Bible. Lamb of God, Son of God. There's the titles, that's the the person of Jesus. He says he's the Lamb and he's the Son. Notice what the lamb does. He dies for the sins of the world. To a Jew, that would be disturbing, right? That he not only died for Israel, that this lamb somehow dies not just for Israel, but to 
give his life for the entire world. He's the savior of the whole world. The word takes away or getting rid of, carrying away, talks about just being removed. The sin is removed. If you ask the Jew in that day, how does God remove your sins? He would say through the substitutionary sacrifice of an animal. He would tell you that in order to do that, this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to that the shedding of blood is a substitute that covers our sins, appeases divine wrath, and we are forgiven. That's what they would tell you. James Montgomery Boyce does an excellent paragraph on, on understanding this. Listen to this. All the wealth of the Old Testament symbolism in the sacrifices of the patriarchs and the Mosaic law throws weight on this title, Lamb of God. For it shows Jesus to be the sin bearer, the Passover, the innocent substitute dying in our place. This great truth of substitution, the bearing of the sinner's guilt and penalty by another, is carried over from the Old Testament to the New Testament by means of this metaphor, Lamb of God, and made an integral part of the gospel message. Jesus is not a Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. But what I find striking in this passage is the combination of both the Lamb, 29, and then in verse 34, the Son of God. And I thought to myself, where is the connection Again, he's not a son, he's the son. The unique son who shares in the nature of the father. He says, I've seen, I've borne witness. It's in a continual sense. I constantly see, I constantly am boring witness to that truth. But why is John saying he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and then ends his testimony in verse 34 saying, we bore witness that this is the son of God. What's the correlation? I thought of two stories. Old Testament stories, but true. In Genesis 22, Abraham was told by God to take his son, his only son of the covenant, bring him up to the mountain. There, take a knife to your son. And he put Isaac on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an altar. And as he took the knife out, what happened? God stops him. And then God, what? Provides a substitute. A substitute sacrifice in the place of his son, Isaac. And now you and I think, now why would he take his son up to the mountain? I mean, who would, who would sacrifice his own son? Why would God ask him to do that? Abraham knew something we didn't know. Next story. That's one. Keep that in your brain. Next story is found in Exodus. You know the story. It's the final day in which God's going to deliver his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, to worship the Lord. He told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh kept saying, nope, you're not going anywhere. And Moses, after nine different plagues, Moses comes to the camp of Israel and says, God has spoken to me. He said that he wants us to sacrifice a lamb, take some blood, put it on the doorsteps, put it on the lintel, which is the frame, and there eat of the Passover lamb. It's the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt at night. I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the next morning, as everyone woke up, both Jew and Gentile, both the Jewish people, the Israelites, and the people who lived in Egypt, the Egyptians, they were either had a dead son or a dead lamb. Either they took cover under the sun and were saved, 
or they lost their firstborn son. The reason we see that take place all throughout the Old Testament is because is because the firstborn son of the Jewish people that God taught them belonged to Yahweh. Belonged to Jehovah. Your firstborn belongs to me. And rather than sacrifice your son, he says, I will give you an opportunity to substitute a lamb in his place. You will bring your son to the altar, but you will bring a lamb. You will sacrifice. The death of the lamb will be the substitute of your firstborn son. And the reason that God showed Abraham that and shows us that is that every single family, firstborn son is the prodigy, is the first prodigy of this family. Every family is owed to God because of their sin. It is a sin debt that's owed. And God shows them that, you know what? You can redeem your firstborn with the lamb. Abraham knew that God is a God of justice. Abraham knew that God said to Abraham, bring your son because the debt in which was owed was payable, was, was due. That's why he brought him up to the mountain. If it had been his wife, he would have thought he was crazy. But Abraham knew, the ancients knew, that every family owed a debt to God because of their sin. And their firstborn was required. And the only way to spare the life of your firstborn was to bring a lamb in its place. Do you see that? Justice came down in Israel. Excuse me, justice came down in Egypt. And the only covering the Israelites had is not because they were Jews was simply because that they obeyed God and they sacrificed a lamb in the place of their firstborn son. Do you see? Do you see the redemption? Do you see the work of God? What God required of us, God put forth. God gave his firstborn son to be slain. The lamb in place of our firstborn was actually God's firstborn. The, it's amazing, this, this idea and this wonderful work of God to redeem us, he offers up the lamb, the firstborn son to be the redeemer of the world. Romans 8, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the price of redemption. That's why John says, look, the lamb, the lamb. You remember the lamb? You remember the death of the lamb so that we can be redeemed? Do you remember when Abraham went up to, to give his first son as payment, but God provided an animal in its place? You think, well, where do you see that? Look at First Peter. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see? The substitute, the one who dies in your place, the one who's done everything is who you need. He paid the price for your sin. He stands in your place. Not only did Jesus, who's the lamb, who is the son of God, die in your place, but he did it voluntarily. All the commentaries that I read spoke about how it could have been a ram, it could have been a goat, it could have been a lamb that's been sacrificed. Not, oh, it doesn't have to be a lamb. But why a lamb here? Because a lamb is known to walk down to its death without biting, without kicking, to the slaughter. It's a picture of the voluntary, substitutionary, willing sacrifice 
of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that you can be redeemed, you can be purchased, and you can have forgiveness of sins. That's what John is testifying to. That's what John means in John 1, that the word God became flesh. The reason the incarnation, and one of the reasons the incarnation, probably the most important reason is that he can die as a substitute in your place that God's been pointing to through Abraham and through Moses. What is your response to this testimony, to this eyewitness account? What is your response today? Are you still gonna say, I need proof? You have proof. You have testimony. You have testimony of witness of an eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time for you to say, I need to stop making up my excuse. I need to stop, you know, playing games with this. Jesus really came. He really lived. He really died. He really went to the grave. He really rose from the dead. And the good news is, he's alive today. And if you turn from your sins and you repent of your sins, which means to turn and receive him and trust him in his work for you on the cross, dying for all your sins, he will give you the gift of his spirit and you will be born anew of him. That's a promise he makes, not I. And maybe some of you need to say, I need to stop. And as the band plays and we respond, you need to say, I'm done. I, I, I hear the testimony. I see the witness. They've written about the proof of what truly happened. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. You died for me. You rose for me. I want to walk with you and yield your life to him. Some of you maybe need to respond by being a witness to the truth of the gospel. No, not in the same way of John. You haven't seen Jesus personally, but you know him. You know him through the spirit that dwells in you. You know him through the word in which you read. And you've been born anew. You know him. You love him. But you know why? Your mouth is closed. You're not witnessing. You're not declaring and demonstrating the gospel. I don't mean going door to door knocking on windows and doors. If you want to do that, go right ahead. But I'm talking about building relationships. You talk about living on mission. Talk about building relationships, looking for gaps, praying for people, turning conversations around to spiritual conversations, talking about Jesus, pointing to people to Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. But no matter how much we share about what God has done in our life, the truth is we have to get back to that historical account of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he died a substitutionary death. And some of you need to say, Lord Jesus, I've been a Christian. I've been walking with you. My mouth is closed. Give me words to say. Give me people to talk to. Let me love people where they are. Let me, let me demonstrate and declare the gospel to them. And God will answer that prayer. God will answer that prayer if you do that. So whatever your response be, let it be in obedience to what God has spoken to your heart about. Need to repent and trust Jesus? Do so. If you need to be on mission, witness and declare and demonstrate the gospel, let's, let's do that. Let's pray and let's ask God to give us wisdom and, and boldness, kindness, but boldness. Father, we are all called in different ways and have different lives and work in different places, go to different schools. But Father, just as Jesus said to his early disciples to wait, to wait in Jerusalem, that when the promised spirit come, he will baptize you, you will will be filled with the spirit so that you may be my witnesses in power. You receive power and be witnesses of the life and death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Father, as we respond... Give life to those who don't know you. 
Grant them repentance and faith in you. And Father, as a church family, as those who know you, help us, Lord, to live as witnesses testifying to the truth of the gospel. Not only what he is doing in our lives, but the truth, this historical reality of Jesus' perfect life. The God who, who became man to dwell among us, to die a crueling death, and to rise victorious over sin, death, and hell. Please hear our prayer and do a great work, we pray. Not for our glory, but for Jesus Christ's sake.